Hi, you're listening to Food People Are the Best People, a new podcast for people who love food from the Eat, Drink, Dine Network. I'm your host, Judy Ann Wu, and this podcast was inspired by my culinary hero, Julia Child, who once said, People who love to eat are always the best people. I'd have to agree. I believe that some of the best people in the world, the most fun, the most creative, the most passionate people you'll ever meet are people who are just maybe a little obsessed with food. On today's episode six, I'm so thrilled to have joining me food designer Sarah Massoni, best known simply as Sarah Massoni, the million dollar palette. In her role as director of product and process development at Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center in Portland, Oregon, Sarah has helped everyone from local mom and pop entrepreneurs to big time national brands take their food and beverage ideas from concept to reality. With a combination of art and science, she makes everything she touches better tasting and more appealing. And when she's not making food dreams come true, she also co-hosts her own podcast called The Meaningful Marketplace. Welcome, Sarah. Well, thanks, Judy Ann. I'm really happy to be here today. It's always so fun to talk to you because I don't know how many times I get approached. I don't even have a food product and people always ask me, hey, I got an idea for, you know, a food idea. I want to create this and this and this. And I immediately just want to say, well, do you know Sarah Massoni? Do you know (laughs) Because it's so complicated. But I think everybody has this idea, you know, because you know this, if you have a great If you make something great at home, you know, maybe you make an amazing salad dressing, maybe you make a killer barbecue sauce. But the idea of taking that product from your home kitchen to the market is a whole nother thing, you know, and I think that's what you do so well. Having just um, known some of the brands that you work with, the idea that you can preserve the, the whatever it is, that special quality and still make it work, whether it's shelf stable or suddenly it's, you know, made by a co-packer. I mean, I you can you discuss how complicated it is or, or how not complicated it can be? <laughs> well, we always start with the product that somebody's already making in their home kitchen and try and work to transfer that golden recipe into something that can be commercialized. And people kind of get caught up in the minutia of details. And sometimes we really just have to help them understand how to keep it simple. Right. Um, Because in manufacturing, it's going to be pretty close to what they want, but it's never going to be exactly what they made in their home kitchen. And so I think helping people go through that small realization is one good step in the direction of getting to commercialization. And um, the fun part, actually, to me is coming up with that recipe or formula, and then the manufacturing becomes more mundane Right. (laughs) And so it sort of depends on the kind of person you are. We have all different types of people come to us at the Food Innovation Center asking for help. And it could be, for instance, accountant who sees a way to make money. So they're influenced by money and maybe not the details of manufacturing. Or it could be someone who's very creative, an artist um, that wants to create something that they've been thinking about for a long time and they may not like the manufacturing or the accounting. And then, of course, we have lots of chefs 
who tend to be the ones that are already in food and they feel like they want to maybe commercialize something that they're already selling in their restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone, you know, sort of ends up on the same page when they realize they have to understand all the details of quality and food science in order to create a food product the same way every time, which is really what consumers want. They want to open their package and say, oh, this is just as delicious as the last time I had it. And by having the same product every time, you get consumers coming back to you, which is critical for the success of your business. You can't really have a successful business if people don't come back and want to buy it over and over and over again. Right. Absolutely. And I think that just knowing you, one thing that I like so much, because, you know, people, when they think about manufacturing, it kind of gets a bad rap. They think of like suddenly it's industrialized and you like the quality of the ingredients, you know, you're suddenly using cheaper ingredients and it's you know, that kind of thing. Like you lose the soul is what people think. And yeah. I, I know you and I know you love to cook and you're like a real foodie. You know, you, I see you at yeah. restaurants and you get excited yeah. about foods and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, that, that obviously you need the food science, you know, for you need nutrition, stability, you know, all these kinds of things. But, yeah. I, you know, I think that at what, what I find that you do so well is you really try to preserve whatever it is that kind of the magic and you really have helped so many brands, especially here locally, because we see them all, you know, Portland, the center, yeah. like the epicenter of all these amazing food products. Right. Yeah. And helping them really fulfill their their dreams because it becomes very daunting like when you have to take a product and scale it up you know yeah it's a whole other thing so scaling up the food product seems like it could be really difficult but i think based on the amount of product you're going to be selling you should scale to the manufacturing that you need to fill your supply chain and as a small startup food company you don't really need to make truckloads of the food that you're selling i mean maybe you're just going to be selling at the (laughs) farmer's market so like thursday night you're making a hundred of whatever it is you're going to sell and you'll sell out you know at your market that weekend and selling out isn't a bad thing because that creates demand. So people will be, you know, waiting in line at your booth the next weekend because they saw your product sold out. So it must be really good. So, I mean, the manufacturing is really critical. And the way that you do it should be to scale of what you're trying to sell. Right. Well, let's talk about some of the products that you help bring to market because they're, they are kind of fun and people do bring them up over and over. But for the people who don't know, let's talk about like one big success story that people know nationally. And that's uh, salt and straw ice cream. You know, like when you come to Portland, you must eat salt and straw ice cream. And I have friends in New York who talk about salt and straw ice cream. And I'm like, did you know it's from Portland, Oregon? Like, really? Like they had no idea. I'm like, it is the Hallmark brand. And when they were starting out, like I know um, Tyler and Kim Malik, I know that you helped them um, really troubleshoot some of the ice cream ice cream is its own finicky thing i mean people always ask me i worked as a pastry chef and make ice cream but like when you're dealing with ice cream it's i mean there's all sorts of like there's ice cream academies you can go to just you can go to school just for ice cream <laughs> like it's very special. yeah it's true the things that you help them um, problem solve when they were getting their first flavors out so um actually backstory is kim and i worked together at garden burger here in the Portland area many years ago. She was a brand manager and I was managing part of the product development um, for Gardenberger. 
and oh, then she Gardenberger. Yeah, yeah she actually had changed her last name from the last i'd known of her we kind of lost touch for a while and so she had come into the food innovation center for another product that she was working on out of the seattle area and when i went out in the lobby she was standing there with her back to me and i was like what that looks like kim and she turned around and we were like whoa you know, we haven't seen each other in a long time this is kind of fun and then we were working on that product and had been meeting during the breakfast hour to try and you know economize on time and one day i said to her kim you know you're making all this product for everyone else and you know driving their businesses up what is it that you want to do and I'm sure she'd had this conversation with a lot of people, but that day she told me that she really wanted to open an ice cream shop. And I was like, oh, we, that's so easy. I can help you do that. So we sort of developed a roadmap of what it meant to be an ice cream in their shop and then started to think about some of the flavors that might be fun and exciting to start with. And over the course of one weekend, I created 18 different ice creams for them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then they came in and they picked their top flavors. And some of those ice creams are still um, on their menus. So it's pretty fun. And then they ended up using the Food Innovation Center where they did their first commercialization work. So they brought in an ice cream freezer and they actually brought in a freezing a freezer trailer and had, you know, ice cream coming out their ears at Food Innovation Center. And then... Right. That first little pop-up they had on Alberta, all that ice cream was put together here at the Food Innovation Center. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah. we all know the, the trajectory of their success, you know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And they you have know, such good quality. And I think um, I think of other brands. Like I, I first got to know you when you were working with um, a, com a company that I, you know, consult for, and that was Straight Away Cocktails. Yes. And they were making, you know, they make bottled cocktails. They also yes. make and you know i was a bit of a cocktail snob and I, of course a friend of my friend a friend of referred me to them and i thought well i'll just go in and i'll be nice i'll sample their cocktails and see how they are and just be mm -hmm. polite um, and i went and i was really surprised because i i went in thinking that because i've had so many bad bottled cocktails or just taste you know like it's so stale and i was so surprised because their signature drink is a lintic and it's yeah fresh lemon flavor in it. And exactly. it really tasted like it was just made and citrus in particular has that kind of qual that, yeah, it's that tart thing and, you know, fresh and mm -hmm. like you just squeezed a lemon or a lime. It's so, so good. I was like, how do you do this? <laughs> other than they take credit, they immediately said, Sarah Masoni helped us develop this cocktail. Like, <laughs> cocktail, but how they made it, how they kind of got it to be bottled like they fully, they, like they fully gave you credit for that. Well, that's awfully nice of them. And actually the person that did that work here at the Food Innovation Center, is, um, his name is Mike Adams. Mm -hmm. And he has a master's degree in uh, food science and chemistry and has worked in a lot of the beverage industries. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when they came to us, I told them, I don't think we can do this work because we've never formulated anything like this before. Mm -hmm. And I sent them away and they came back and they're like, no, we think you can do it. And I was like, well, oh, I don't know. And so finally we agreed um, that if it didn't work, they weren't going to be upset with us. So, you know, well, they we were going to take no for an answer because they knew your reputation. They're like, if anybody, yeah. we're 
problem. <laughs> yeah, so we ended up working through a lot of challenging stuff, like some of the colors and things like that that you would want in a fresh cocktail are really important visually. Right. And as are the flavors. And so we, yep, we did that product. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's great. And then I was lucky enough to go to the fancy food show with you. Yes. <laughs> it was, I tell people it was really fun because um, you were like a celebrity there. <laughs> Everybody was like, Sarah, there's Sarah, there's Sarah, you know, can I get yeah. my picture of Sarah, you know? Because you are so well known because I think you've helped so many people you know, take this kind of idea that they had or something small batch that they were making and really, because it's not just the flavor of the product or manufacturing, you really help businesses make their products better, like on the business side. I know you follow trends. My my premise is that if you really understand the food science and the formulation and the cost to manufacture, you'll be a much better business. And so that's what we focus on at the Food Innovation Center is starting with the the business based on food science. Mm -hmm. And that just gives... um, these small businesses a lot more freedom um a lot of in my opinion a lot of formulation people across the u.s do the smoke and mirrors which i don't agree with where they try and keep certain aspects of food formulation as a secret and one of our things that we do at the food innovation center is that we really want to have our clients involved in the process and so before COVID hit, we actually would have people come and spend a couple of days, you know, on their project in the lab with us and, mm-hmm. you know, to teach them at the same time as we create, I think is super powerful uh, testament to the way a state university is supposed to work because the state university is supposed to transfer information to mm-hmm. the public. And so essentially that's what we do. We, we help people create this idea in their head that they had about the perfect version of whatever it is. And at the same time, they learn all of the details of how to manufacture it and be successful. Right. I had my own experience and I've never had a food product that I personally, um, was my business or anything, but years ago, years, years ago, I, I won a national flavor search contest with Hagen. Oh, oh. they did a national flavor search and um, at that time, I was working at the French Culinary Institute, and all my interns were entering this contest. And so they were all like pitching ideas, you know. And I, if I the marketer, was like, "Well, they're not going to pick that one because that's too that's Ben and Jerry's, or that's like that's like a you know that's that's not their brand." And so yeah. I was trying to pick a flavor that I would feel would win because A was on brand, but also it was. Um, on trend and yeah. so I, I had been seeing a lot of uh sticky toffee pudding coming up lately and it was on the yeah. cover of Bon Appetit that month and Johnny Depp was at that time quoted for saying how much he loved that dessert it was ha- kind of having this resurgence in pop- popularity mm-hmm. so I pitched this idea to Hagen dazs and crazy crazy I actually won this contest and then whoa Food congratulations Network- <laughs> thank you Food Network did like a two-hour special where- and it took about a year to develop this flavor and they flew me to Bakersfield, California to Haagen-Dazs mm-hmm. headquarters where we're yeah. the R&D team and it took them several iterations to develop this actual flavor and the flavor that I had and the flavor that I, the flavor, the first flavor I tested, t- tasted versus the final flavor that came to market was a little bit different um, than what I, I personally would have liked i was still very good but it was through their um they do they i'm sure you know all the like they did like testing 
Like when you're in a room, they change the color of the lights. So you sit in this like blue room. Yeah. And ice cream is like you're a monkey. Like the ice cream comes yeah. out flat and you eat it in this blue room because obviously like color affects your flavor and yes, you know, all these kinds of things. It was, it opened up such a interesting world to me. I had yeah. no idea. A lot um, of large corporations don't make any decisions without consumer and sensory research mm-hmm. um, because they need quantitative data supporting their their theories and a lot of that has to do with the size of the business so the business is so large there's not one person making a decision anymore and so each decision made by each part of that business has to be like approved by data so that's what consumer research is where we actually put food samples in front of a set number of people so that they meet the statistical requirements for being true information and um, we collect data. And we have those lights at the Food Innovation Center actually. Mm -hmm. Um, We have 10 consumer research booths and we can have them different colors, red, green, Mm -hmm. um, yellow and blue, I think. Yeah, I mean this. The, we are. I mean, we take it for granted the locals here, but the, you know, you guys are such a well-known um, place, a destination. You have big brands from all over the world coming to. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to launch a brand without your. You know, they want to get this uh, Ceremony Midas touch. Well, on. <laughs> I mean, I don't actually. A lot. I don't even get involved in the consumer research. So you know, I'll taste stuff on projects that we're working on, but I don't, in fact, like. I haven't done that yet. I have talked to some people who do that. There are people who will go, for instance, into a large corporation and they'll taste products as the food scientists are working on them. Uh-huh. But I, I haven't I haven't quite taken it to that do level yet. That you are like a super taster that you've got like better taste buds than the average person. <laughs> well, I mean, did I read this, I read this that your taste buds are like, you know, they're on another level? Well, 25% of people have the ability to taste bitter compounds, and that's what super tasters, um, that's what what's up with that. And the thing that's different about me is that when I was at Oregon State University, I learned how to judge dairy products. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the judging that goes on in the dairy industry is based on defects. Mm-hmm. So all of the defects that I learned in dairy, actually, I found carryover into other products. So, for instance, if I'm doing a cupping with somebody on coffee, mm-hmm. I know a lot of the similar sort of flavor profiles or off flavors they don't want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's really what's happened is once I kind of figured that out, I've been judging products for, you know, major competitions for the last 15 years. Right. Judge How for the. That? That's pretty like, fun. So much fun, right? Yeah, like the American Cheese Society. I love judging for them. And I've judged the American Dairy Goat Association goat cheese competition a couple times. I've judged for the Good Food Awards. Mm-hmm. And I've judged for the Specialty Food Association Sophie Awards quite right. a few times which are all like the things that if you if you win an award like that that is the kind of award that can make or break a business suddenly yes. suddenly everybody wants your product i think of um the cheese the <laughs> the cheese and the organ cheese that got the best cheese in the world award oh david grammel's down in rogue valley rogue valley yeah what do they call yeah. themselves yeah it's that blue, it's the blue cheese uh, um rogue creamery yeah, Rogue Creamery. 
and I had people, a package here in my office. I was looking for it, but yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I. it's very funny because um, when we first moved to Oregon, I'm originally from Oregon, but my partner, he's not from here. He says, I've never come to a state where people were so proud of where they live. And so they're, they only drink Oregon wine, only drink Oregon beer. And they're so, you know, they're so like, so excited to only consume Oregon products. And so I remember when that cheese got the best cheese in the world, like, the whole state erupted, like all of Oregon, like you didn't matter what industry you're in. We're like best cheese. Yes. Yes. Right here. Oregon, best cheese in the world. So that's funny that you say that. So I grew up in Minnesota, but my dad was from Oregon. And so he would, he would bring my family here, you know, on our vacations, we'd load up the station wagon and drive to Oregon because he's, his brothers and sisters lived here. Mm -hmm. And I remember him saying that the people of Oregon are so provincial. (laughs) They're so provincial. They think everything that they do is the best. Yeah, it's well, true. maybe it is. You know, if you well, think that, sometimes it happens. You know, I feel like some of maybe there's some of the we used to say um, the reason why Portland has the amazing food scene that it does is because it's surrounded by some of the best ingredients in the world. You know, right. Definitely. And a very vested university. So Oregon State University actually has researchers working on over 1,200 specialty crops that are grown here in the state. And the the Oregon Department of Agriculture only lays claim to around 240 of those. That means there's like a whole thousand other products that are grown in the soils here in our state. And our state's so diverse. We have the fields in Eastern Oregon where we grow the beautiful soft white wheat we have the valley where we can grow onions and potatoes and every kind of fruit you can imagine and we have the coast where we have all of our seafood and it's just amazing the diversity in our in our soils and our waters i know didn't i didn't i read that the maraschino cherry was invented at oregon state university well i think the process of manufacturing was invented there in fact in one of my classes when i was taking food science classes we learned how to make maraschino cherries (laughs) and wasn't the boysenberry or was it the the marionberry yeah i think marionberry and maybe even boysenberry were um cultivated and figured out at Oregon State University. Right. These little nuggets, I just like to, I don't know if it's true or not. I just like to throw the facts out. Like It's true. You know, <laughs> it's, it is, it's a source of pride because, you know, people, people who love food, it's like, you know, it's, it's, there's things that are natural, but also things that are, I say natural because that then it makes you sound like it's unnatural. It's not that it's unnatural. It's, it's people are working to make the products um, better, you know, either. Yeah thrive better in the climate, um, have a greater yield or more delicious, more juicy, all these kinds of things. Yeah. I think it's it's fascinating. Did you hear about the new digital series that OPP is working on? It's called Super Abundant. No. Yeah, we ju- I'm I'm a content person, so I'm helping the guys who are producing it, along with a couple other folks, to connect with people throughout Oregon. Um, the first part of the series is about truffles, Oregon truffles. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. And they have some other ones coming out as well. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, isn't that amazing that we have Oregon truffles in Oregon wine country, that they are... They yeah. Are- 
that they're all together and that they're own their unique special thing. Like I, I did a little work when I was working with the Oregon Truffle Festival and people would try to compare them to like the European truffles and it's its own thing. Like it's, it's, you can't compare one or the better, whatever. It's kind of like, it's a different variety. So it has yeah. its own characteristics, but I mean, it's how lucky that we have this amazing truffle and then the wine that goes with it all in the same place. Exactly. It's amazing. And did you, you know, I went to the, um, the Joriad, which is their, uh, the dog truffle hunting, uh, contest that they oh. have, the festival, which is so fun. It's like the movie best in show kind of, okay. um, but, but what's really, it, what I found really fun about it was it's almost all women, like all oh. the hunters, like the best ones are all women. And, you know, and, and you think of like, in comparison to like European truffle hunters, all these kind of men and. I don't want to say they're stodgy, but kind of stodgy men. And then here in Oregon, they're all these mom. They like the like moms, librarian, school teacher kind of like types. And their dogs are like every shape and size and form. Like it's not a. There's obviously the truffle dog breed that kind of looks, you know, it looks like that. What is that breed? The long gornet. It's like this really long name. Something, but looks like a poodle. Um, yeah, brown curly hair. <laughs> right. That's yeah. like the truffle dog. But at the same time, you'll see dogs of every single. Um, breed and size and they're doing really well and people just they take it up as a hobby more than anything and then wow. they like spending time outdoors with their dogs it's so fun that is fun My actually sister, I haven't been to any of those events I really would like to do that in the future Oh, it's so fun. It's really, my sister uh, trained her dog. She had a dog and she trained it to hunt Matsutake mushrooms. Oh. So, <laughs> which is what she likes. So That's she would just cool. like Matsutake's around her yard in a paper bag and just would give a treat every time he found them. And then, and once they were out in the wild in the forest looking for Matsutake's and, you know, when you're hunting mushrooms, your face is down, right? You're not really paying attention to where you're going. And suddenly she found herself kind of lost in the woods and she was oh, like, dear. Jack, find home, you know, like to the car. And of course he knew exactly where he was. So he's, you know, Oh, he was yeah. smart dog. Smart dog. Yes, for sure. That's well, do you, cool. when you came to Oregon, do you remember, um, like, who was your inspiration in your in growing up for food? Like, did, was your family like really into cooking, or I know well, you work in food science too? Yeah, my dad was a professor of food science at the University of Minnesota, but he actually was born in Gilroy, California, mm -hmm. and his family had a cheese and ice cream factory there. And he and his family moved up into the Grants Pass area where he spent most of his, you know, grade school and teenage years until he went to Oregon State University. Um, and his family produced dairy products. And so he decided to become a professor of food science and microbiology. And his area of expertise was really dairy. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I always tell people that I really got my PhD around the kitchen table because my dad would come home and talk about every all the details of what he did during the day at work. Right. And so I think I learned a lot from him there. But mm -hmm. when I was in high school, I worked in a cheese shop mm -hmm. and I learned about over 200 different cheese and how to run a delicatessen and different types of coffees and teas and candies and all the crazy stuff you'd want to find in a deli. And then I, I didn't really give it much thought. I went to Oregon State University and I started in the food science department. 
And after a couple of years of that, I took an art class and I thought, oh man, if I don't take these art classes now, I'm never going to have time for this in the rest of my life. But, you. And, you know, unbeknownst to myself, I was creating sort of a, a interesting hybrid bread in my education because I developed both the right and left side of my brain for creativity and science. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really put me in a unique position um, to sort of be who I am and what I do. But as far as being a foodie goes, you know, my mom was um, and still is very thrifty. And so I didn't get to just ramble around in the kitchen and make whatever I wanted. And so I'd have to sneak in there. And I was super excited when I was a small girl and got the Easy Bake Oven. Um, oh, yeah. Do you remember that from when we were yes, little? Yes, I had one. Well, I had I had like a secondhand one because, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I got it for Christmas and I'd used up all the mixes. So I went downstairs super early in the morning, like at four in the morning. And I was, I searched through all the cupboards and I found, I think I found the powdered sugar and I mixed it up with some water. And I poured that, turned on the oven and, and baked it. And pretty soon, I guess my mom smelled it and she came downstairs and was surprised <laughs> at how I had been like up early baking these cakes. So right. in that sense, I think I've always been sort of fascinated with how food and things are prepared. Mm-hmm. And um, when I left Oregon State University, I remember a phone call that I made to my dad because I was over at the Cordon Bleu looking into going and becoming a chef. Mm -hmm. And I called him because I was filling out the paperwork for, um, for funding funding, you know, so I could pay for it. And you know what he said to me? He said, you will not go to chef school. You already know how to slice olives. (laughs) (laughs) So then I was like, Oh man, I better figure out some other way to be involved with food. So essentially I've just always worked in the science side of food um and many years ago when i was just out of college in fact i did work for a company called westman foods and they had created this product called microguard which is a spoilage inhibitor for refrigerated foods in fact you probably if you have any refrigerated salad dressing in your cupboard or your kitchen um like lighthouse or any of those they all have a product in there that says cultured dextrose Mm-hmm. And that cultured dextrose is actually microguard. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of that development work when I was right out of college. I worked in their um, laboratory doing food science and a little bit of formulation right. work. And I mean, I think that's really where my foodie part started because, you know, mom was, she didn't want to waste money on me spending money on food. Because it right. was tight. We had four kids at home and just one income. So mm-hmm. I didn't get to just cook whatever I wanted to. And as I said before, I'd have to sneak, sneak right. in there and, you know, well, try and do stuff. So mostly I was watching. Right. You know, yeah, watching my, what mom, my mom did. She didn't let me cook either for the longest time because, A, she just didn't. Well, A, she, she, she only cooked Korean food, but she didn't want me to... Um, she didn't want me to hurt myself. She also, she's very unlike, I don't know if this is typical or not, but she she thought that my entire life I would have to cook and clean for somebody else. You know, yeah. my husband. She yeah. thought I would have to spend my entire life cooking and cleaning for everybody else. So when I was a child, she didn't want me to do anything. I had no chores, no cooking, no whatever. She's like, relax now. 
because for the rest of your life, you're going to be cooking. Oh, <laughs> she was smart, right? You know what the one of the funny things I told my daughter, we would be out walking, I'd be holding her hand and I would squeeze her hand and I would say, you will do the dishes for the rest of your life. <laughs> and so... I um sometimes back then she's like what mom and you're like and now she's like yeah mom you're right <laughs> now she helps me with the dishes after dinner and I'm so thankful but she I think she think probably thinks back to those walks and goes mom was right I'm gonna do the right. dishes for the rest of my life right oh it's so true it's so true and so did you um when did you start really cooking then and probably not until you left the house right actually my first um cooking that I did was when I finally got to live in a house when I was um, in college mm -hmm. and there was a tree out back that was um, golden delicious apples right. and I made like 10 apple pies that summer and then also I found in the cupboard someone had a recipe for cinnamon rolls and so I started making cinnamon rolls and baking and things like that and I realized that I really enjoyed it yeah. um, and so it just kind of started growing from there. Of course, when I got married and had a family, then I I liked to do all the cooking. And mm -hmm. now one of my favorite things to do is actually to prepare meats on our, our uh, smoker at mm -hmm. home. Yeah. And so I love, I love doing that. In fact, I see you all have like a pizza oven. Yeah, we got a new one of those Gosney rock box and it's for a while we were making pizza at the start of COVID like everybody else, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Making it on the, the big green egg. We started making it in the oven and we did, you know, Trying just all, all the different ways, all sorts of tricks and stuff like that. And finally, we're like, you know, let's just get a pizza oven. They're not that expensive. We eat pizza every single week and we got yeah. it and it's so life changing because it made it's totally upped our pizza game and just made it so it yeah once you get your dough dialed you still have to obviously make good dough and you still have right, to know what right. you're doing. but the the kind of the having that high heat wasn't an issue because you just turn it on preheat it throw that pizza in and it cooks in like you know two minutes <laughs> yeah the high heat is critical for a great pizza yeah well a long time ago at the food innovation center i got a to do a project where I actually copied a pizza from a restaurant down in the Medford area uh -huh. for a couple of fellows that lived down there and they thought they wanted to commercialize the restaurant's pizza. And I learned a lot about pizza dough. There's a lot of nuances to come up with a really good pizza dough. Oh yeah. I don't think people oh. really understand how important that ball of dough is. Mm -hmm. like that you don't disturb the ball like when you you're, you can make a big pile of dough but once you put that the dough ball into its shape right and the fermentation starts to happen that's where all the bubbles are formed uh -huh. and so you have to like carefully stretch and move that dough around so that the bubbles go to the crust Mm -hmm. to the outer edge and that's how you really create a really delicious pizza crust well you know I don't make the pizza in our house. I leave that to my other half to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have the, you know, he says it's not a lot of work because it's not like you're actively doing a ton of work at one time, but it's kind of like you start it, you come back to it, you start it, you know, because some of the doughs that we make are like two day doughs. Yes, you have yeah. to let them sit. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of, you have to kind of like monitor this thing. I feel like I have too many other things in my life to have to monitor, like children and people like pets and whatever. Yeah. So I, 
all the cooking I do is like one shot. Like no, not, I don't want to do these multi-step, multi-day process. And I've seen some of the cakes you baked and stuff. Those yeah, are Yeah, but that's all easy stuff. Like really the cakes I, I, bake, I do, well, I bake the cake one day. I always bake the cake prior to, because I want that moisture migration to happen. You know, I don't want that firm crust and that soft. I want the whole thing to be like the same texture. So okay. I always cakes in advance i wrap them i sit i let them age you know before i build them but Do you age them refrigerated or um just on the sh- it depends counter? most of the time i just stick it i leave it on the counter if it's for one day if i'm working ahead i'll put them in the refrigerator um and then but i will like i always make sure that cake is room temperature before i serve it you know so i might ice it do like it's uh you know crumb coat stick it in the refrigerator but I think temperature with cake is so important because I see a lot of cakes and I eat a lot of cake, you know, when I go places and I don't like a lot of cake. <laughs> I feel like most of the cake out there is just really dry, not very flavorful, too sweet, all these problems. So I'm yeah. cake, but like generally don't like cake. <laughs> One of the other cool things that I got to do was my because of my dad, I would go home to Minnesota in the summer and he'd always find an interesting job for me. And one of my jobs was working in a local um, bakery in the summer. <laughs> oh boy, did I see a lot of interesting <laughs> things happen there. Oh boy. Right. Everybody loved the, like the apple fritters on the, in the Saturday market. And mm-hmm. one day I got to um, ice them and the bucket of icing was like fermenting it was like just a bucket you know that they and nobody cared and i mean and that's probably why it tasted so good it had like (laughs) lactobacillus and yeast and all sorts of stuff in there right (laughs) oh i know oh sometimes you don't want to know those little secrets like what yeah. they like there's places that i saw this um i was talking about this place that they you know they fry the hamburgers and they they mm-hmm. advertise like that we haven't changed the grease since 1942 or whatever something oh, like that geez. they keep adding to it but they don't you know or that you know or you go to those like noodle shops or whatever those vietnamese noodle shops and they just they just keep it boiling and they just keep adding to it but it's the same broth and i always think Ooh. There's something going on. I don't know, but I don't. <laughs> no one's don't want to know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, sometimes I don't want to know these kinds of things. Yeah, that's the food science and microbiology part. That's right. You know, and the and when I actually when my husband and I, you know, were first married, he realized that I noticed different things about food when we'd be out to dinner, and he'd be like, "Don't say anything. Don't say anything." <laughs> But now when we're out to dinner, he thinks it's kind of interesting. And so if somebody says, well, how'd you like the dinner? And I say, do you really want to know? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the thing, it's. Like, you know, some people really want, some people really want to know, especially if they're paying you and they want your professional opinion. But yeah, yeah. They, what was it? Like, you know, they don't want to break. They just, it was good. It's like, oh, it's delightful. You know, like when they come to their yeah. table. You know, how's they it going? don't really want to. It's like, yeah. well, the potato was warmed up and the, <laughs> you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's you know they already know what's wrong with it i don't know why they ask right what's your so you you mentioned um you like cooking on the smoker uh what else do you like you like to bake i see that you like to i bake. do love to bake and i actually like to make candy i don't um make a lot of candy but some of my favorite projects i've done have been um i copied um the snickers bar and i've oh, copied wow. the milk milky way and <laughs> Yeah, that was really well, fun project. That would be fun. I bet a homemade version of that. You know? Oh, so good. 
I think those bars are still being made um, down in the Medford area. There's a company called Pete's Candies, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, do you know of them? Mm -hmm. They make marshmallows. Uh, they start off making marshmallows and then the candy bars were being made there. And now they have a whole line of candy bars um, that I think originated from the work that I did. Yeah. Oh, fun. I mean, the candies have changed because I remember as a kid, I remember one of my favorite candies was like the whatchamacallit. Yeah. Uh, remember the original whatchamacallit. The original whatchamacallit, like a few years ago, I don't know how long, but, you know, it's been decades. But like, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago, I had another whatchamacallit and it's totally different candy. Like totally, there's like caramel in it now. It used to be like flaky and, you know, it was a whole other texture. The whole, the whole candy has changed. So <laughs> I don't know if you experience things like you remember. I, I, I When they say like the original recipe, I always think, is it really the original recipe? Because I feel like- For, time, From last year. <laughs> right, time, like companies are like tweaking either like they're trying to make it less expensive or I mean, you certainly see it's, it from the size. That's exactly it, Judy. And they want to make it lower cost. Mm -hmm. And that's really what makes products not taste as good, in my opinion. Right. There's more fillers in Cross there. Reductions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, when I, I got to go visit my mom in Minnesota a couple of weeks ago, and when I was driving back to the airport, I saw Pearson's um, Salted Nut Roll um, factory. It's by the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. And original food? What is it? I don't know Pearson's. Pearson's? So they're selling it... Um, I just saw uh, displays at the Sportsman's Warehouse, so if you want to go get some, they have two for $3, and it's this delicious nougat center in a delicious caramel and then just roasted peanuts. Oh, that sounds good. And they're big. They're like this big, and I have to say, <laughs> they taste exactly like they did when I was a kid. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so that's fun. I mean, you got to maintain those types. I feel like when they, when you have that kind of product that has such a memory to it like what is it uh gregor grew up in this area of philadelphia he had the what are the tasty cakes yes the tasty cakes yes. he loves the tasty cakes and for one of the like a special occasion one of his family members sent a bunch of tasty cakes and he opened it up and it's to me it's kind of like uh, the hostess it looks yes, like a yes regional hostess kind of thing and he tasted it and of course it's like overly sweet whatever what but the amount of emotional love and flooding of memories and i was like it's i'm so happy that this exists still in the world for you to enjoy yeah. this you know? Well, Tasty Cakes had kind of a rough go for a while. In fact, one of the ladies I worked with at Garden Burger, she had done um, work at Tasty Cakes. She came oh, from the East Coast and came here to Oregon, and she had worked on the Tasty Cakes um, and then worked at Campbell's Soups. And a lot of those old, old brands, everybody has to remember they were once new, too. You know, like they started out small. That's what I always tell people. I kind of stole that line from the portland classical music channel one of the guys always says and remember all music was once new and i was like you know what all food was once new too they were they were you know yeah. the, the brands that you're working with now they could be these brands that are like 500 years later people are talking about exactly yeah what iconic <laughs> yeah pretty cool yeah, I remember, for as long as I can remember, I can remember Garden Burger, you know, I remember, like, that was, like, the original. That product is nothing like what it was when I was there. Oh, I'm sure, but that was, like, the original Garden Burger, like, when, it's almost like, it's like Kleenex, where people just say Garden Burger when they talk about a meatless burger, when they, it's yeah. not necessarily 
that brand. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those veggie burgers that are out now are all um, using flavors and technologies that I used 25, 30 years ago. And a lot of the innovation was done by me <laughs> with the ingredient suppliers. They didn't know how to use stuff. They would come up with things that they thought could be used in a veggie burger. And I had people beating a path to the door at the at um, Wholesome and Hearty Foods mm-hmm. asking would I try a new ingredient. And one of them is actually, actually the textured um, wheat gluten that's manufactured by Midwest Grain Products. Mm-hmm. I was the first person to make a product out of that wheat wow. gluten. And now it's in quite a few of the veggie burgers that use wheat. Same thing with all this textured soy protein. Mm-hmm. I was a principal scientist on a patent pending for um, flame grilling veggie burger, mm-hmm. soy veggie burgers that look like hamburgers. <laughs> so all that work was done long, long time ago. All the flavors, everything. You know, I oh, can taste. Fun. I can taste those products and say, "Oh yeah, they're using Jividon. Oh, this tastes like, you know, someone else." And you know it, how fun to be able. I wish they had like a. They need to have like a a hall of fame. You know, and put you in it because so many of the foods that we eat today, like you probably touched in some way that people don't even realize. You know, food has gotten. Yeah. Food has gotten. You know, for like some food has gotten a lot better. You know, let's. Some food has gotten kind of, you know, like you said, people are trying to save money and stuff like that. But it's kind of amazing that the engineering masterpieces that have made things possible. Like I think about, you know, like the, um, you know, like the, what do you call it? Like the Beyond Burgers and things like that. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing that people can create products that are made from one thing, taste like another thing, cook like one thing, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's I feel like science for the good. We were the first ones to combine methacellulose and um, it's a modified wheat gluten that's been acidified. And those two ingredients used together create this film that really binds all of the um, textured pieces together. Mm-hmm. And and um, this one time, it was so funny. The guy from Dow Chemical didn't hang up his phone. And so on my phone at mm-hmm. my office, it recorded him talking with the sales guy in his car for like 30 minutes and how oh innovative we were at Holzman Hardy Foods. And he couldn't wait to share the information he'd learned with some other you know, person and all this stuff. And I always thought that was really funny that the technology back then back then um recorded his whole conversation (laughs) it's like being a fly in the wall because yeah so to be a part of that is pretty exciting i think oregon has always been on the side of innovation and that's what makes us a really interesting place because we have early adopters here where people Mm -hmm. are interested in trying new foods and we have creative people who want to try and make new foods Mm -hmm. and i think i've just been on that tidal wave for many years and that's why right well for, to talk for a while about Oregon's uh, tagline was uh, Oregon is for dreamers yeah, yeah Oregon we love dreamers we love dreamers <laughs> not just dreamers like dreamers and doers like they get stuff yeah. in Oregon you know they yeah, exactly. actually get it done I mean think about like Nancy's yogurt down in Springfield that was started by the Kesey family Ken Kesey the mm-hmm. guy who wrote the 
magic Kool-Aid bus or whatever. Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- that was a bunch of hippies, a family, right. you know, they decided, well, let's start a yo. you know, we make the best yogurt, let's, right. let's start a creamery and let's sell it. And that mm-hmm. yogurt brand is super famous all over the West Coast. Right, right. And so that was born from a creative guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's and it's exciting to be around here because if, I feel like the creativity spurs on more creativity because mm-hmm. there are so many interesting food products and people doing cool things here. Yeah. Um, food still. <laughs> and you know what else is cool about some of the stuff that I've experienced is when I graduated from college and I was working for Westman Foods, the folks that had the MicroGuard um, mm-hmm. product, I got to travel around with some of the salespeople that sold microguard and they were older and they had a lot of knowledge that they passed down to me mm-hmm. and i think that is super valuable too so if we have any young listeners and they're trying to figure out how am i ever going to become what i want to be i guess my my advice would be is find somebody that's doing what you are interested in and see if they'll be your mentor right Oh, I know. I, I think about people who have helped me in my career. I remember every single person who made an introduction, who um, exactly. gave me an, an interview, like dis- mm-hmm. just did something like recommended me for something. And it just yes. takes a little bit of time to be able to give back. And you, I mean, I'm sure you're the same way. You remember everybody who like did a gesture of kindness on your behalf when they did. Of course. Them, you know? Yeah. Eh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So what did, what did you eat before you came on the show here? There was a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> so I'm working on a keto cereal piece. Uh huh. Oh, so you're is it you're this is a product you're you're working. Yeah, on. I'm at the Food Innovation Center today. I'm working with a company to create a keto breakfast cereal. Gotcha. Was it is it good? Plant based. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what do you like to eat when you're not? there at the innovation center oh well today for lunch i had pizza (laughs) (laughs) pizza's awesome (laughs) um you know last night for dinner we nobody wanted to eat yesterday it was so hot so we did nachos at our house it was kind of simple yeah i could i mean really i would say my food at my house is pretty just normal food because I, I usually make a meal in 30 minutes. If it can't make it in 30 minutes, then I'm not going to do it. That's true. I'm I'm the same way. I can, you know, and you know, part of it, I think you're probably this way too because you know you can. So there's no who you're going to impress. Like you have nothing, no one to impress. So you know, you know, you can make that dish that takes two days, eight hours, two refrigerators, whatever. But it's like, we're well, going to make it for you know you and one other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the yeah, fun and most delicious dinners I like to make is falafel and um, tabbouleh and baba mm-hmm. ganoush and all that, you know, fresh pitas and stuff like that. I love that meal. Yeah. And that's, so, that's so healthy and it's mm-hmm. you know, with your hands and all that kind of stuff. I love that kind of stuff too. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes simple is best. And I think some people feel like you got to cook everything all the time, but it's like, you know, you cook when the mood strikes you and then you also make nachos and it's totally fine. So Yeah. I mean, if anybody wants to make falafels, I would go to Sheridan market. They have bulk falafel mix. You just add water and then you just add in. It's so good. You can just add in extra chopped fresh parsley 
Mm-hmm. It's bomb. I'm, I don't even know why anyone would make it from scratch. Wow. <laughs> well, now, so now I know. I know. This is a local market here in Portland. They have great. You know what I love about that? What When you go there, the first time I, they have that um, wood bar. It's like every single variety of wood for your smoker or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they got, That's a cool story. They got apple wood. They got cedar wood. They got alder wood. They, it was mm-hmm. like, this cool. And they got it in chips. They got it in chunks. They got it in blocks, you know? Yeah, they do. That's a yeah, good story. And then I want to know, Sarah, what's what's your favorite snack? Oh, my favorite snack? Oh, well, I guess it would have to be anything that has a sugar in it. <laughs> oh, you have a sugar sweet tooth, too? <laughs> I do. I really love desserts. Um, yes. I knew I liked you for a reason. There you go. You're like my people. That's <laughs> a downfall, but... I mean, for Amy, our daughter, Amy, she just had her birthday. I made this really good lemon cake and I put lemon curd in the middle and I did lemon drizzle on it. It was so good. Uh, Tastes like summertime. That sounds so good. It was pretty good. And then if you, I know you have so many tricks up your sleeves, but if you could have a trick or a skill that you didn't have to work towards, what would that be? Like you just woke up one day and you have this magical skill, this talent, whatever. (laughs) Well, I think I would be like bewitched. I would be able to like, you know, move my nose uh-huh. <laughs> and just change <laughs> things, things that happen. I didn't like. Yeah. Or maybe I would be like, I dream a genie and I like do that special, whatever wiggle she did and go into a bottle. Uh-huh. And you can grant people's wishes, which I feel like yeah. you already do. You already do this all the time. So many people yeah. like- indebted to you maybe that. i was really affected by those two tv shows when i was a kid <laughs> i love those shows me too i love i dream a genie and i liked the the show that girls um as well oh yeah mm-hmm. and i give marlo thomas credit because she there was one episode where she didn't have any money and she went into the corner diner and she asked for a bowl of hot water and okay. then she took the ketchup off the counter and she just squeezed it into the bowl of hot water and made soup and then took the free crackers that were sitting on the counter and that was her lunch. <laughs> See, that is that is food innovation right there. And that, that. That's probably one of my favorite memories from when I was a kid, oh, watching that it. silly show. Well, I love it. And thank you so much, Sarah Masoni, for talking to me. This is episode six. Um, with food designer Sarah Masoni on the Million Dollar Palette. Thanks for listening. 